Mark Beaumont is cycling high up in the Pyrenees. He's almost at the end of the hardest trip of his life, when out of nowhere. I crashed quite hard. On the Spanish side, I dropped the bike late at night after a really tough day riding up from Madrid. And now he's injured. His whole body is hurting. I was struggling. You know, two months in, I'm in the darkest place I've ever been as an athlete. And then suddenly, the weather starts to change. Heavy rain, really tough conditions, and any time the weather or the conditions close in like that, your focus shortens considerably. So you're no longer dreamily thinking about tomorrow or the next day, you're just like, how do I keep going? I'm Rob Pope, and from Red Bull, this is how to be superhuman. Before we do anything, I should introduce myself. I'm an ultramarathon runner, and in 2016, I ran five times across America in the footsteps of a certain Forrest Gump. Yeah, yeah, and I, I know it's a film, but it was still 16,000 miles and 25,000 kilometers in 422 days. It's the kind of thing some people might call superhuman. But what does superhuman really mean? Well, every week, we're going to meet someone who has done something superhuman. Maybe they've swam a boat of 20 people to safety. I just was thinking that I just want to get on the island. I don't want anyone to die. Or they've smashed the record in Britain's most extreme race, months after giving birth to their first child. All the way through that last night was just trying to stay ahead. It was like being hunted. But first up, it's Mark Beaumont, a real-life Phileas Fogg. The man who cycled around the world in less than 80 days. But that's not the only reason Mark is superhuman. Before Mark's extraordinary trip on the bike, he attempted to break one of the biggest records in ocean rowing, crossing the Atlantic in under 30 days. What happened out there on the open ocean would shape the rest of his life. Forcing himself to ask, was any of it really worth it? His journey from glory to disaster and back again is one for the ages and shows that being superhuman isn't just about the highs of success, but also what you do when you're down in the gutter. For a man who's travelled to more countries than you can name, it's hard to believe that Mark began his life in the Scottish countryside, homeschooled and somewhat sheltered. I wasn't in a playground, so I wasn't kicking a ball around or playing rugby or doing what normal kids are doing. I was, I was on the farm. You know, in the small holding that I grew up on, it wasn't really the best of uh, businesses, but it was a complete sort of uh, playground, adventure playground. So, you know, I was very close to Glen Shee. I was skiing, I was horse riding, I was cycling from the very start. And uh, I first decided to go on a bike ride when I was 11, and I wanted to go from Land's End to John O'Groats, but I had no concept of how far that was or, you know, what it would involve. I've got two daughters of my own now, and, you know, when they come up with these crazy ideas... You just don't have a reference point when you're a kid. So my mum quite rightly said, look, try something smaller first because you've not really cycled off the farm before. And so I recruited my uh, neighbour and another homeschooled boy and we uh, pedalled across Scotland. 
And I loved every aspect of it. It wasn't just the bike ride and the adventure, but it was the planning of it, you know, the maps and the whole process before I turned a pedal and then, you know, fundraising for some charities and then afterwards getting my picture in the paper. The whole cycle from planning it to doing it to sharing the story, I was a real buzz. And then when I got dropped into high school as a 12, 13-year-old, you know, I had a pretty rough ride because I was this sort of socially <laughs> socially inept um, homeschooled kid. And so, you know, and you're plonked into a city with 1,300 kids in a, in a playground. You know, I find that a pretty rough ride. So adventure was kind of my escape. It was the thing I was good at when I was shocking at football and particularly shit at rugby. <laughs> Despite your height, I was actually sort of. It's only until I sort of really did my research that I found out that you're six foot three. It's more of a rugby player's build than a cyclist. Did you have any cycling heroes? Did you ever think you'd go into maybe like pro cycling? No, never. I mean, to your point, I'm six foot three and ninety kilos. <laughs> when when people meet me, uh, it's enough to give you a complex because when everyone meets you, especially at events, they go, "Wow, you're bigger than I thought." If I had a pound for every time somebody said that to me. <laughs> Because your average, you know, pro cyclist is, you know, maybe five, seven, five, ten, twenty kilos lighter than me, skin and bone. Whereas I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not built, built, but I'm a big guy, and um, you know, I've always felt with ultra endurance that's given me just that capacity to endure. You know, that that you know that big battery. You know, it's it's the you know the psychology and the physiology to keep going. So I, I don't think being big's ever stood against me with all the sports I've done. You're obviously still able to take on these challenges, but what was it that made you go, I'm going to take on this big expanse between here and the North American continent? I mean, my mission for a whole number of years was uh, was ocean rowing. So, I mean, it, it wasn't that well documented because I never made films about it, but I spent three and a half years trying to ocean row. And my simple motivation was I had cycled the continents and I wanted to join the dots. I wanted to figure out what it would take to across the Atlantic, the Indian, the Pacific Oceans as well. And, you know, the big dream back then was to do the first sub-one-month crossing. And it was only done last year for the first time. So that is fast. And we were, we thought we had it. We thought we were on par for another world record until day 28. Day 28. Just two days of breaking one of the longest standing records in ocean rowing. Nearly a month in, it was stiflingly hot. We were near the equator. Mark is alongside his five other crew members, four Brits and an Irishman, all aboard the Sarah G, an 11-metre-long boat specially made to withstand the brutal conditions in the Atlantic. And all of a sudden, the sea starts to change. So we'd been in much bigger seas. We'd been in seas with like 15 seconds between peak and trough. I mean, like valleys of water. But this wasn't that. This was short, sharp chop. This was just confused water. And it's tossing them around. Throwing the boat all over the place. And then, from nowhere... A wave came in, or a set of waves came in, you know, off the side, sort of 45 degrees, and just really awkwardly sort of spun the boat over. And the first one sort of had it sitting quite far over, and the next one just piled it over. Tipping the boat upside down. Now, usually these Atlantic rowing boats will self-right. That's the way they're designed. But not this time. So being on a change of shift, the hatch door was open and people were switching out. So if the boat had been at any other time, it would have self-righted. But with the stern cabin open, it immediately flooded. 
And that's when the real panic started. We capsized. And we went for, you know, talking about dry land and getting off that boat and finishing a, what had been a brutal month to um, paddling around in my boxer shorts, you know, trying to be rescued. And so, I mean, you know, I've, I've been on expeditions before where, sadly, I've seen people pay that ultimate price. I've, you know, in the mountains in particular, but on a few occasions. But it's the only time in my, in my career I've genuinely thought, OK, I'm going to die. So what happened? How did Mark and his crew manage to survive being thrown from the boat in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean in the dark? Just picture this. They were clinging to a life raft that was tied to the capsized boat by a 50-metre line. The problem was, was that nobody knew and they didn't have any emergency kit because that was still all on the rowing boat. So Mark just had to make a decision. Basically, he'd need to swim all the way back to the boat to get the stuff, the radio, the GPS, so they could let the Coast Guard know that they were in big trouble. Diving underneath and salvaging the kit that was needed to be found. And it, that's the impossible bit to describe. You know, you're, you're opening your eyes in salt water, you're diving down, you're trying to navigate that dark. And you're trying to then reopen the hatch doors, swim into that space and trying to find anything, anything that's... Um, but, you know, it's such a familiar space, having lived in that for a month, and then suddenly, you know, it's, it's flooded upside down and dark. Everything was taking time down there. He couldn't see anything. And he kept making mistakes. The first time I was under there, I grabbed what I thought was the satellite phone in its waterproof housing. And I surfaced, you know, just my lungs were screaming and I was just sort of, you know, just trying to get back to the surface. And I pulled my hand up and I was holding the fire extinguisher. But eventually, they had the equipment they needed. So that's your satellite phone, your flares, your VHF, your EPIRBs, all the stuff that's going to tell people where you are and start communicating. That took us six hours. How did you manage to eventually raise the alarm and describe the rescue process? Yeah, so I kind of knew that you've got two EPIRBs. EPIRBs are your emergency sort of transponders. They show you on global tracking where you are. So the first one continues to to tell a mayday from the point that you pulled it, which is fine if you're not moving. You know, if you're on a mountain, that's fine. If you're at sea on, you know, the currents in the mid-Atlantic, you know, that soon becomes slightly irrelevant. They know there's a mayday, but they, they still don't know where you are. So your second EPIRB is GPS tracked. So the second one, which is the GPS tracked one, I knew as soon as I found that, small black unit and we set that off I knew that we'd brought down rescue from days to a matter of hours wherever the nearest boat was would now come and reach us relatively quickly only problem was they'd no idea what kind of boat was going to turn up and so they waited middle of the night bobbing around in a little six man life raft until out of the darkness comes lights and a boat churning through the chop we got picked up by a cargo ship. It was, you know, the size of a football field. And that was one of the most dangerous parts of the, the entire rescue because 
you know, I can never describe what it's like to be in stormy seas, being thrown around in the black of night with something which has got a nine meter deck height, you know, bearing down on you. The first two times it missed us and then it disappeared off into the night, circled and, you know, 15 minutes later made another pass. The second time it nearly ran us over. The bow wave nearly flipped us. It's, it's impossible when you're on the bridge, you know, to to see in the dark a little six-man life raft. And you've got the crew running up and down the deck, trying to throw lines down to, to, to reach us. And then, you know, even when we did, third time around, managed to grab the lines and come alongside. You're then, you know, in, in high seas, getting dragged up and down the vertical hull so it's sitting heavy in the water and you're violently getting sort of lifted and then slammed for some of the guys on the boat this was terrifying some of the guys hadn't coped well at all and we sent them up the ladder first but you've got to jump onto the ladder at the top of the swell if you jump on at the bottom then you'll immediately get ripped off it and you're you know you're gone so the guys who hadn't ever left the life raft hadn't been a part of the whole rescue process and really had struggled. We, we sent them up first and then Matt uh, uh, and myself, the last two guys, you know, we're sort of holding the two lines, desperately trying to sort of make sure that, uh, you know, we don't lose the ship. But equally, now there's only two of us, that, that final bit of the rescue was, was, was really difficult. But... Um, you know, as soon as I grabbed hold of that, you know, that rope ladder, I, you know, I scampered up it. You know, there's an amazing photograph taken by the crew because they, they were documenting all this for their insurance purposes. And it's me literally in my boxer shorts and a T-shirt, big scraggly beard. You know, I've spent a month at sea. Um climbing you know climbing upwards towards the deck and at that point i knew you know we were we were we were alive we were going to be fine but then we spent 10 days coming slowly across the atlantic before being dropped off in gibraltar so there was plenty of time to sort of decompress and go what the hell happened out there you know why did that happen and what went wrong because it was far from perfect all the training you know it didn't exactly bear out i mean we we lived but it was it was hell and we so nearly didn't come back so that was obviously through no fault of your own your first taste of failure, really, on these big, big uh, type of things. At the same time, somebody's gone and beaten your record as well for going around the world. Yeah. Which was the bigger motivation for going back, or were neither of them the motivation? I mean, the truth of the matter is, it kind of looks now like I was sort of watching the record and then wanted it back. But what actually happened was I came back from the Atlantic and I thought, look, I'm done. You know, I'd spent all of my 20s doing major expeditions. I got married eight weeks later and I thought, look, you know, next chapter, I'll just continue to to make documentaries. But they don't need to all be about me. I quite enjoyed just the filming and the television. So I um, spent two years working for BBC World uh, filming the build up to the Commonwealth Games. Absolutely loved it. Got to travel the world, interview athletes, dream job. But I was kind of inspired, but jealous. I couldn't take myself out of that equation. I wanted to be doing what the athletes were doing. And the idea of holding the microphone for the next 30 years. Uh, so I came home and I said to Nikki, my wife, I said, I, I know I said I'm done, but I'm not done. At that point, I had watched with awe and with interest the record that I'd set back in the day, the 2006, 2007, had been not just pipped, but smashed, you know, taken 
many, many people had gone for it. You know, sometimes four or five people a year had gone for it. And the record now stood at 123 days. So it was held by Andrew Nicholson, a, a, an Olympian from um, New Zealand. And so with no disrespect to Andrew Nicholson, I was never really trying to break his record. My mission from the start was to do the first fully supported circumnavigation race. How fast can you humanly get around the world? Selfishly, I just want one opportunity to put all my cards on the table and think, what is the ultimate? I don't want to look back when I'm 70, 80 and go, there was another level I could take that to. I always knew it wouldn't be the most fun thing I'd ever done. I always knew it would hurt like hell. But I just sort of thought, there's another level you could take this to. And, and the best possible expression for that is the world. You talked about the support for this. This was not uh, from being supported in America, which is my, my girlfriend making me burritos in the, in the back of an RV. You would probably need a different level of support here. You know, you were needing, you were needing science. How did you go about preparing this team? How did you assemble it? There was about 10 people at the heart of the project, split between logistics, media and performance. But all told, there was about 40 people involved and uh, it was a massive project. You know, people still see it as one guy on his push bike, but, um, you know, the cost and complexity of this eclipses everything else I've ever done. My first recruit was a researcher and he was nothing to do with cycling or sport. He was just somebody who I thought had the right attributes. And I just thought, here's somebody who is going to ask all the questions that nobody else asks. I thought, for me, it's what I would call my familiarity bias. I know this world too well. I've done this for too long and I'll just do a version of what I've done before. You need somebody who comes in and sort of just says, well, why do you do it that way? Like, why have you always done it that way? And that started with from the researcher looking in incredible detail at the roots. Me going off with my sort of performance team in the lab and on the road and starting to figure out, you know, optimals in terms of ride time, sleep pattern, food, hydration, the rest of it. Initially on my performance side, I had everyone, bike fitters, coaches, nutritionists, um, loads of people all feeding conversations into me. A, I didn't understand half of what they were saying. And B, their advice didn't always complement. So eventually I recruited one person, uh, Laura Penhall, who was my performance manager. And every single conversation about performance went through Laura. So by the time we got to the start line, I'd quite successfully handed over all of this to my amazing team and just said, right, I'm just the bike rider. I'm not the boss. I'm not the decision maker. You know, if I fail, we all fail. So my job is just to ride the bike. Your job is to get me around the world. It's a lovely bit of humility there. I'm just a bike rider. For those who are adept at instant mental maths, 80 days, That well, 80 days of cycling, that's a big number. 18,000 miles around the world, that's a very big number. <laughs> Can you tell me how many miles a day you were needing to do and how do you start to train for that? So I was, I was averaging 240 miles a day. So 240, for those who have, I mean, a lot of people have, say, ridden a century. If you ride a double century, it's a big day. Ride a 240, but that's not the trick. You know, if you're fit, you can ride a 240. It's waking up five hours later and doing it again and again and again and again and again and again for two and a half months. You've got to do it every day. And here's the other trick. To make 240 your average, you have to be able to ride through it regularly. So if 240 in any way becomes your target, you'll, it'll never become your average. So you have to regularly, without sort of it being a big deal, you know, 
tap out 250s, 260s, even 270s. You know, I did a 280. In the end, it was 75 days of riding, three days flights, two days contingency. So for every continent of the world, so Asia, Australasia, North America, and then back through Europe, we had 12 hours contingency for each continent. Now think about it. That might sound like a lot, but you could lose six hours with a flight delay. It's not hard to lose 12 hours on a continent. Yeah, I, f- I followed this like every single day and I was stressed for you when I was following it. You were the one doing the riding and also thinking about these potential contingency issues, uh, health things, transport, you know, sort of uh, just the unknown, wildlife. Uh, what sort of, like, how did you cope? What were these mental tricks that you did to keep yourself sane? Well, I mean, it sounds blindingly obvious, but, I mean, if you think of a given day... It's quite scary. If you think about the next country, if you think of it's just too big, you know, when you're so sleep deprived and you'll know what it's like when you're tired, you go to idiot mode. If you've given yourself big questions to answer every day, you know, I don't think anyone's tough enough. If you've built an escape hatch, you'll jump through it. So my my mentality on the road is do all the big thinking before you start, know what the plan is, and then just trust the plan. So I would never get to 240 miles and then stop. I would ride 16 hours. If it was minus four outside and the storm was raging or it was a beautiful day and I had a tailwind, I was still going to do 16 hours. One day I would go 200 miles and the next day I would go 280. It didn't matter. If I couldn't believe that each of those was an equal success, then you're never going to make 240 your average. Whereas the, the, the opposite way of thinking about it is, hey, it's a great day, let's make hay. Let's go nuts, knock it out of the park, and then on a tough day, hey, we'll protect ourselves, there'll be a better day, we'll make it up. And if you, if you start playing that game, you're never going to hit your best possible average. So, mm. so just don't give yourself any questions to answer. It's interesting because safety comes first for Laura and my performance team, you know, absolutely well-being. But the wider team, I banned them asking me how I felt because of how brutal it was and how, you know, everyone I met, my team, my performance, my logistics and my media team every day, but for a lack of no, knowing what to say to me, they would go, how, how are you feeling, Mark? And I was like, it doesn't matter because whether I feel on top of the world or rock bottom, we are doing the same thing. So A, it's a boring question and I don't I want to stop you know, answering it, but B, it doesn't matter. Unless it's a conversation with my performance manager and I'm unsafe to carry on, how I feel doesn't enter the equation. What did you say to yourself as you literally made that first pedal stroke? Riding out of Paris at four o'clock in the morning, there was party revelers. It's busy at four o'clock in the morning, the Arc de Triomphe in Paris. There was people who had cycled out to see me off. I mean, it was it was crazy. I was standing there on the start line with a few minutes to go, signing copies of my book and taking selfies. And I'm like, this isn't right. Like I should be, I should be totally in the zone. And yet, I felt like I was at like some event in the middle of the night in Paris. I wasn't sitting there going, oh, I've got eighteen thousand miles to race in the next eighty days. I was like, is everyone okay? Anyone got any more questions? It just wasn't. It wasn't an optimal headspace to, to, to start a race like that. And then even when I left, it was like all the filming and blah, blah, It probably took me to like lunchtime on that first day to go, ah, this is it. All right, <laughs> okay, let's do this. We're we're off on the world. Yeah, you hadn't even gone that far. When I say that far, you'd probably have gone about the best part of 2,000 miles when the first disaster struck. Yeah, there was, there was a couple of um, nasty crashes on the 80 days, which I guess could have could have ended it uh, ended of it all in terms of the ambition on day nine 
5.30 in the morning in the dark in the wet and I went over the bars when I hit a, uh, you know, an unseen pothole and, um, you know, it happened so fast but the, the crash ended up sort of wobbly teeth. My canine tooth was quite badly chipped and I'd fractured my, uh, my elbow, my radio head. So I carried on quite quickly. I was back on the bike 35 minutes later but um, definitely took a while to recover. It was also fine balance when crashes like that happen because, you know, you want to be safe, you've got to look after yourself, but there's no point going to a Russian hospital, spending half a day getting an x-ray and telling you what you already know. If you can operate the bike, if you're safe to ride the bike, you've got to keep going because you don't have that time to lose. So if you struggle through the Russian roads, you got through the beautiful country of the Mongolian steppes. Yeah. It's one of the world's great wildernesses and you had a lot of people immediately around you, but it's very different to normal human relations. Were you lonely? Um, yeah, of course. I mean, when you're doing big expeditions like that, you've got a, a phenomenal amount of time in your own head. So you're right, I've got constant company. When I look back, every conversation, every purpose, every everything is about making the bike go faster. But, you know, it's on you. It's a lonely place. It's a lonely place because I guess the, I guess the thing which is hard to explain is your team can... Um, yeah, do you hear that crack? That was from the fracture. <laughs> Radial head, there <laughs> it, you go. It, it does that all the time. <laughs> um, the, the thing, even though you know the team are basically deciding on the project for you, if I get out the RV at four in the morning and I smile, everyone smiles. If I, if I look worried, my team look worried. So that sort of emotional leadership, that sense of everyone looking to me for that quiet confidence that we are actually doing this, you can never delegate that. So is it lonely? It's lonely because you're scared of failing. You know, mm. you've set yourself up to do something like this. Everyone is working on your behalf to make this dream a reality. And, you know, you don't want to let yourself and everyone else down. I'm uh, so surprised and flattered to come to the other side of the world and for people to know who I am and what I'm up to. It's, uh, it's brilliant, so thank you. Um, just a note about problem is, you don't really want to be around anyone else either. I was struggling. You know, two months in, I'm in the darkest place I've ever been as an athlete. He's completely shot. And now people start appearing on the road, asking to cycle alongside him. Most of the time it's, it's cool and I, I appreciate the company, but um, understand on days like today, so some people are totally understood the mindset of the ultra-endurance bike rider and understood what I was putting myself through. Others, I'd say not to be too much of a diva, you know, after 12 hours of riding, would just be super excited, join you and want to have like a two, three hour Q&A session. I just, I need to zone out. I need to stay in the zone. And if anyone's ever run ultra-endurance or cycled ultra-endurance, it's quite hard to suddenly sort of be the ambassador like you know like you're at an event just chatting anecdotally about what it was like back in Mongolia it's quite hard to push yourself really hard physically and psychologically and then just be you know just shooting the breeze chit chat answering questions because you're hurting you know you are pushing yourself you're in a physically and mentally very difficult place yeah if you want to support me when it's pretty wild weather like this you know come and give me a shout from the roadside that's awesome Brownies and cookies are always appreciated. There's been some uh, good home-cooked donations in the recent days. 
and we actually had to put a couple of messages out, especially when I had like howling headwinds through going through the prairies, like really tough riding, just saying, look, people, thank you for all the support, the tens and tens of people who are coming out every day. Please support from the roadside. Please stop and chat to the crew, but please don't ride with me because I'm struggling to ride my bike and I just can't be the entertainment as well as the bike rider. But please understand that I just need to be left to my own devices on a day like today because, uh, yeah, I need to stay in my own head just to ride hard against this. Things weren't going well. He was tired, done in. I thought I'd be starting to sort of rack it up towards the finish and really sort mm. of push the last two, three weeks of the race. In actual fact, I'm going backwards here. But then as he came up over the Pyrenees, which was the home straight. I crashed quite hard. So on the Spanish side, I dropped the bike late at night, half past 10 at night, after a really tough day riding up from uh, from Madrid. So I was ill, I'd, I'd crashed, and then I sort of got into France in really heavy rain, really tough conditions. And you'll know what it's like from running. Anytime the weather or the conditions close in like that, your focus shortens considerably. So you're no longer dreamily thinking about tomorrow or the next day. You're just like, how do I keep going? All you can think about is the road in front of you. Mark focused on the pedals below him, mile after mile after mile. But every mile was a mile closer to the finish line. And now Mark started to see people on the roadside. And more and more people started to come out. Loads of expats, you know, loads of company. I didn't have a lot of time to sort of think about things myself. It was more reflecting other people's excitement. You know, the tens of people who were joining me each day and coming out and wanting to be a part of it and getting a sense of their excitement. Suddenly he started to realise just how many people were supporting him as he rode into Paris. Into the Arc de Triomphe, the amount of people who wanted to be a part of it was extraordinary. You know, I've lived in this little bubble. You know, all that I've imagined in my mind's eye is my daughters and my wife and maybe my mum at the finish and a few, a few close friends and family. But the reality, of course, is totally different. I think it's the only way you can think about things when you're an athlete, just in very, very simple terms. But the project had sort of grown bigger than my simple ambition. And, you know, the people that wanted to be there and the the wall of media asking crazy questions and 300,000 people watching it live online, like it just becomes something which, from my sort of simple ambition to, to then this big public event was was very different. And I'm not taking away from the finish. It was extraordinary. But I was definitely... <laughs> well, shattered, but a bit of rabbits in the headlight, a bit like, oh, wow, this is, well, A, I can stop riding my bike, but B, it didn't, the penny didn't really drop. It didn't really feel, it didn't really feel very real. It was just, it was all sort of taken out of my hands and there was just stuff happening around me. And I sort of lived in that bubble for a few days until I really felt like I'd stopped. So you left idiot mode. Yeah. We're talking about idiots, you know, you went from being homeschooled to a PhD in the University of the World, having done a very lengthy course and, and numerous uh, subject matters. 
What things do you think you've learned from the rides and the row, of course? I think I've probably learnt a hell of a lot about the world, which makes you hopefully humbler and more intrigued and more willing to adapt. In terms of sort of that outward view, you know, I've never been a competitive athlete where I'm trying to beat somebody else. I've been very competitive with myself, trying to push first and fastest. But it's always with a, it's always with an interest in the world that you know I'm 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 taking these journeys on. So people also often say to me, "Why don't you go for the for the year record, the most miles cycled in a year?" With you know due respect, I love what they've done, but I can't imagine anything worse than leaving my front door every day just to ride miles. I ride my bike because of the places it takes me. The fact that, as I said before, every day is different. So whether I'm rowing a boat or climbing a mountain or whatever it is, you know, it's that sense of self-propelled journey which has always fascinated me. And of course I've learned an absolute ton. And um, I guess where I am now, age 36, with two daughters, it's just the passion to bring the next generation into as much adventure as possible. So they have a similar quiet confidence to make their own mind up, to take on their own ambitions, to do things their own way. I mean, we live in a wonderfully diverse and interesting world but there's a great commonality to it as well there's a lot more and i said this at the start that joint that, that joins us than separates us and you have to experience the world firsthand and i mean that as opposed to just flying into a place and staying in a hotel and comparing it to home and talking about how different it is i mean actually join the dots between places and you know understand the commonality and i think that becomes a hugely useful toolkit for almost everything you do in life because you respect things for what they are, but you also see you, you, you see what joins things up. And I think if I'm explaining myself at all, that's probably the most useful part from having spent a life travelling. What a story. Well, he's been continuing that life as an adventure cyclist. He's recently returned from Chile on a huge ride. Now he's travelling the country, telling people about his experiences on the road. If you get the chance to see him, I'd really recommend it. Thanks so much to Mark for being my guest on How to Be Superhuman, which is brought to you by Red Bull. Episode 2 sees us welcome the very special Diana Nyad. She swam through shark and jellyfish-infested waters to become the first person to ever swim from Cuba to Florida without a shark cage. Tentacles wrapped around my neck, down the forearm. I was screaming out to Bonnie and the shark divers on the boat, help me, help, I'm on fire, help me. I couldn't breathe, but I swam. You can find Diana Nyad's story in your podcast feed right now. And please remember, subscribe and leave a review if you enjoyed this first episode. Also, get in touch with us on social media using the hashtag RedBullHowToBeSuperHuman to share tales of your own superhuman feats. Or maybe suggest other people we can talk to with incredible stories. We'd love to hear from you. How To Be Superhuman is a Something Else production for Red Bull Media House.